You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we have our favorite expert on commercial real estate, Mr. Ian Formigli. Ian is the chief investment officer at CrowdStreet. In this episode, we discuss how the commercial real estate market has performed since we last spoke in mid-2021, what the main drivers were, how labor and supply shortages have affected the market, the rise of niche asset classes, an update on the mass exoduses from places like California, the top performing markets of the last year, and so much more. Ian always comes prepared with the most incredible data and insights. So without further ado, please enjoy this discussion with Ian Formigli. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to the Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Trey Lockerbie. And like I said at the top, I'm here with Mr. Ian Formigli. Ian, welcome back to the show. Trey, thanks for having me back. It's always a pleasure to come in and talk to you. Well, last time you were on the show was around August of 2021, and the market was doing some interesting things. It was starting to bounce back a little bit, multifamily especially, but the commercial offices were lagging a little bit. But something interesting happened in the back half. What happened with commercial property sales and and the rest of the market? How did it perform? Yeah. So in the second half of that year, it was just tremendous growth and resurgence in the market. I mean, when we were speaking, we were seeing, you know, when we spoke last time, you know, in 2021, that we were starting to see some some movement and it was improvement in the market. It just hadn't really started to accelerate as much as we had previously maybe thought, but it more than made it up for it in the second half of the year. And so when we ended 2021, it was just a historic year for the market across, you know, multiple measures, you know, from starters on a volume side. We ended the year with $809 billion, roughly, of total transaction volume. And that's according to Real Capital Analytics, uh, the group that I had mentioned during our last conversation. That was an 88% increase year over year from 2020 volume. So just a huge comeback year for the commercial real estate industry. So when we break out that volume and look into it, you would see that multifamily, as we probably all get, uh, was the dominant sector. That was accounting for about 42% of all deal activity, which translates to about $335 billion. That was also a record. So from there, the other asset class that we've all been speaking about, and it was no surprise, was industrial. That had the next most transaction volume. That showed up about 21% of total deal volume, about $166 billion. Also a record. Uh, so just a huge year for those two asset classes. All the other sectors pretty much then chopped up the remaining $308 billion of total deal volume. And it was interesting to see, you know, hotels bounce back. They had $44 billion of total transaction volume. So not huge, but, you know, coming off of 2020, where they essentially did nothing, it was tremendous to see that asset class start to partake again. And then Office even actually bounced back, had $139 billion of total transaction volume there as well. And, you know, from a returns perspective, 2021 was just equally astounding. You know, we track Green Street's commercial property price index, for example, that's the CPPPI, and prices increased 24% in 2021 with significant price appreciation basically spread across most real estate asset classes. The highest appreciation that we saw last year was in self-storage at 66% and followed by industrial at 41%. So just for a, from a pricing perspective, just huge momentum in the market last year. 
And then in terms of locations, Dallas-Fort Worth Metro was the number one market for transaction activity. It was followed by Atlanta and then Los Angeles, Phoenix, and Houston to round out the top five. And you know most of the top five markets were anchored in apartment sales, except Los Angeles, which was interesting, where we saw industrial sales actually beat apartment sales. And not too surprising, you know, the LA market is a tremendous industrial market. It's actually our number one industrial market in 2022, which I think we'll talk about a little bit further in the show. But so Trey, just an overall, a phenomenal year for the commercial real estate market, you know, especially for those multifamily and industrial asset classes. Now, what were some of the drivers behind such a strong performance in the back half of the year, especially? Yeah, interesting. I think at a high level, you probably sum it up as saying just pent up demand from both buyers and tenants. You know, on the on the transaction side, you know, I think there was this bit of a perfect storm, you know, coming into 2021 that translated into these rocketing pricing that we saw. You know, we begin with think about all the macro drivers that were in play last year. You know, first we saw this tremendous surge of investment activity across all forms of capital, particularly institutional sources of capital that were back in the markets and they were fully engaged. You know, it felt a bit at times last year as if the institutional capital side of the equation was attempting to kind of make up for lost time in 2020 when they were more on the sidelines and not as active. And so we, what we saw was capital flows absolutely driving pricing and rocketing prices upwards in 2021. The next thing that you saw was we had supply chain issues that we know about, and those were preventing you know some new stock from being delivered to submarkets quickly enough, um, while at the same time driving its own cost of creating that stock higher. For those of us in the industry, we know that the buyers of existing real estate they factor replacement cost into their analysis when bidding. In essence, when you buy a property, you want to buy it at what you think is a discount to what it costs to build it today. So, but when you're in an environment where where replacement costs jump 12% or more in a year, well, that creates more room to increase your bid because you know that the that the your discount to replacement cost is also increasing at the same time. So I think the third thing that we saw was that market participants were beginning to realize in 2021 that we were beginning to enter an inflationary environment, which we are now talking about in 2022. And in, in, in times of inflation, you want to hold hard assets. Um, so I think this was just kind of like what you would say is like more fuel on the fire. And, and I think the final thing was, you know, we were experiencing rapid GDP growth in 2021, right? We saw that end the year at about 5.6%. I think that's according to a lot of banks, including Goldman Sachs. So I think, Trey, in essence, you roll it all up. We had a bunch of macroeconomic factors. We had market-driven you know, capital force factors at play, and those were all combining to drive demand for commercial real estate. So just, you know, just a lot of demand there. Yeah, perfect storm, so to speak. I mean, especially when you add in the fact that a lot of uh, retail, if that's the right word, had amazing credit scores. They were able to pay off their debt by staying at home, not traveling, less spending, a lot more savings. That was entering the market as well, just about the time where it was harder and harder to create new inventory. I want to go stick on that point about supply chain. There's been a lot of discussion about labor shortages and supply chain constraints in almost every aspect of the economy. How has it affected the commercial real estate investing space? Yeah, I think you know from a real estate investing perspective, 
There's a few things that we've been watching as it pertains to labor shortages and supply chain constraints. A few things come to mind, I think, on the risk management side, as well as one other thing that comes to mind in terms of new investment opportunity. So I'll explain what I mean on both fronts. From a risk mitigation standpoint, I think the first thing that stands out to me when reviewing deal flow is understanding how labor shortages may affect project timelines on new development. For any new development deal that we look at, you know, we have to consider that delays and timing, they're costly. So one item that we tend to hone down on when reviewing a ground up deal is assessing the probability that the developer can deliver the project on time. And one key ingredient for doing so is having confidence in the general contractor. So that means that we have to evaluate things such as the tenure of that relationship between the developer and the contractor. We have to ask questions such as like, how many projects has this team delivered together? How many of those have been in this location? What's this track record of, of in general of the general contractor for delivering on time? And you know where does the contractor rank within the construction industry? And how often has it lost its subs to other projects? And that's the really the part about the labor shortages, right? Because one thing that you learn by participating in a number of development deals is that subcontractors are, you, you kind of would say they're like hired guns, right? They come in, they're there to conduct you know a piece of a project, get it done. And sometimes those subcontractors are willing to bail on one project for a higher paying project down the street. And But what's really important to note is they're only willing to do that to the lower tier contractors because they also don't want to burn bridges, right? They have to go on and get their next job. So when labor is tight, as it is right now, you really want to focus in on that labor side of the equation and say, you know, and work with those general contractors that are going to command the respect of the subs. And by doing so, you're going to have greater, you know, confidence in their ability to deliver projects on time. So I'd say next, aside from construction issues, another risk mitigation concern that stands out to us is would, I'd say it's in the hospitality industry. You know, we've seen enough BLS data to know that the hospitality industry is bouncing back and they are rehiring. Uh, but a lot of that you know, w- workforce that they lost during the pandemic, some of it is lower wage and they're struggling to bring some of that back. So when we consider risk when evaluating a hotel deal, you know, we are then going to delve into the question of who is the hotel operator and what is their staffing plan? We need to understand if they have adequate staff in place uh, to execute the business plan because to kind of break it down, if you you can't rent a room if you don't have adequate staff to clean it, right? So these are these are things that really do affect a property when you're dealing with like a day to day type of occupancy. And finally, I'd say that in the industry there is an indirect risk in retail shopping centers associated with labor shortages. And so you know, in this scenario, while your tenants are the retailers, they're paying you fixed rent on long term leases. You know, many of your tenants in a shopping center, particularly I'd say restaurants, well, they rely on lower wage workers to conduct their business. And as we've all read about in in places like the Wall Street Journal and so forth, we've heard about these stories where staffing these types of positions has been really challenging since the beginning of the pandemic. So if your shopping center has a number of restaurants in it. And some of those restaurants are now closed for part of the week because they're short staffed. Well, as a landlord, you have to wonder if those tenants are either going to fail, they're going to either not renew their leases, or they're going to come back to you and ask for rent abatements. So again, this is an indirect risk, but it's a very real one for the retail industry. And that means that you have to understand the viability of your tenants in a retail shopping center and their ability to staff when evaluating one of these types of deals. So with that downside kind of risk mitigation, you know, said, it's also important to note that supply constraints, you know, supply chain constraints, I should say, 
does and is creating a new opportunity that is cropping up around the country that's designed to specifically address those constraints. And that is what we call industrial service facilities. I'm a big fan of the strategy. So I do want to talk about this in our conversation, but there's going to be a point in time where I think it's going to be a better point for us to do it. So I'll pause there um, while we move on to the next question. Awesome. Well, as I was kind of mentioning earlier about offices slow to return, can you give us any more clarity about what the future of office work looks like? What are you seeing in the data? Yeah, you know, Trey, office has been a fascinating market. And it's to me, it is probably the most interesting uh, market right now because it is in a major state of transition. So there's there's a lot to unpack here. So I'll jump into a few of it and try to be as brief as possible. So for starters, early 22, there is definitely more clarity today, I think, relative to a year ago in sense of what the future of office is going to look like. It's coming and it's starting to look more and more like a hybrid model. They're, it's gaining traction and we're starting to see it discussed you know, more and more. And I would say that within the overall sphere of office, you probably do have to carve out some of the other types of work you know, that really do need a physical setting, such as life sciences companies. But one thing I think, for example, Trey, is you know, last time we talked, we discussed Gallup data that had forecasted that what the breakout of the in-office, hybrid office, and fully remote workers was going to look like. And I think the update to that is that it's, it's starting to look a little bit more like 37% empty desks, as we would say, kind of the dust is starting to settle a little bit on the space. And so I think the thing that is really beginning to sink in for a lot of knowledge workers around the country is how much time they get back by working remotely. And this is probably one of the reasons why I think that hybrid work is definitely going to be a sustainable trend, at least for, you know, call it this decade. And so just think about like just commuting time and what that does. So, right, U.S. Census data we can look at currently estimates that the average commute time is just over 27 minutes. Then you factor in things like getting ready for work and transition back and forth to work and getting to your desk and actually being productive. Okay, so now we're up to one to two hours per day solidly. It's kind of like thrown out, just getting back and forth. So over the course of the year, that's six to nine weeks, right? That's a lot of time for people that are busy. So you got to ask yourself, how many people are going to be willing to just give back six to nine weeks of this newfound time just because the pandemic is over? And I think the answer is nobody is really willing to give all of it back. I think a number of people are willing to give some of it back, but the willingness to give it back is going to be really, I think, contingent upon the experience of what they go into the office and what they, and what they see when they get there. And so, you know, and when we look at the market today, I think the kicker here is in the jobs posting data. So according to a recent report published by Green Street, you can now see that roughly one out of six job postings on LinkedIn are remote. And that was compared to one out of 67 in March of 2020. So pretty big difference. And then furthermore, there's another website called Ladders, and they're tracking that roughly 20% of high paying jobs are now remote. So I think the bottom line is, is if the jobs are now being advertised as remote, I think they're going to get staffed remotely. And I think we're going to have a lot more remote, remote workers in, you know, in the years ahead. So I think what that does is that increasingly makes us kind of bullish on infusing the hybrid office model into our office investment thesis. And it's an important to note that, you know, a growing hybrid office model, it doesn't necessarily mean doom or gloom for the sector. It just means that it's changing. And I'd say that we view office right now as being in this important state of transition. 
that will tend to reshape, I think, the industry over the coming years. But it's just a kind of, it's a really fascinating time to see like how that transition's taking place. I think an important thing also to point here to Trey is that as we know, office utilization rates vary depending upon location. I think that is also an important part of the equation as to what office looks like in 24 to 25 as things start to stabilize. So to me, what that suggests is that certain markets, the more highly utilized ones, they're going to start to feel more similar to 2019 in the future. And while other markets continue to feel a little bit more like 2021. So there's a, there's a group called Castle Systems. They track a lot of data in terms of the office space. And what we're seeing is the three markets that are really standing out in terms of utilization. Those are Texas markets. Those are Austin, Dallas, and Houston. Uh, and they're, they're amongst the top in the nation. And those look right now relatively in the low to mid 40% range for utilization. And what I mean by utilization is what percentage of people are coming into an office today relative to who walked into that office in 2019. Now, if you back up a step and you say, what does it look like across the top 10 metros? That office utilization rate drops to 31%. And then from there, you know, if you look at some of the, the coastal markets, you know, we've talked about New York and San Francisco in the past. Those are, I think, still kind of down in the 20s. So I think this discrepancy is a part of what makes me more bullish on the Sunbelt office locations as we hit the middle of this decade. Adding on top of this is that there's definitely companies that will revert to roughly five days per week in the office when things return to normal. For example, we look at law firms. Uh, while the average you know, office utilization rate across the country, as I mentioned, those top 10 metros, about 31%. Well, when you look at law firms, now you're at 52%. So I think there are some of these type service type industries, professional service use industries that I think are going to have a higher rate of utilization. So that's something that we also bake into kind of our equation when we think about office in the, in the future. And I think the final thing to think about when it comes to the future of office is blending co-working into it. You know, the shifts the office market is, is experiencing right now, they are very well suited to co-working. When you go to a hybrid model, you are giving up on the idea of dedicated desks for employees, and you're thinking about this percentage of your workforce that is going to filter in and out of the office on a weekly basis. And the days, they're, they're going to overlap some, there's going to be some unique workers on some days and other days, but you're now starting to run your office more and more like a hotel. And that what that really means is that that, that type of demand, it's really well suited for co-working. And the beauty is, is that if the co-working model is embraced by these companies, well, think of the benefits that they get because they no longer have to manage an office in the way they used to in the past. And managing an office today, it's challenging because you just don't know what to expect. You can get away with that completely by going to the co-working model. So ultimately, what I believe the future office looks like is it looks more like a multifamily property than it does today. There's this thing, sometimes I refer to it as what I call the tenant improvement industrial complex. And what that really means is you have these companies that would come in in the years past and they would want this customized office space. And you have a landlord that would spend 70 to 100 plus dollars per foot building it out for them. Five years later, you kind of tear it out and start all over again because the next company wants something different. And the, land, and the way the market was working was it was conducive to catering to the needs of the new tenant and, and solving to their demands. I think that's, that has to go away in the future because the way that demand is looking now and how it's fluid, and it's also, it wants, it wants lower duration in terms of commitment. You have to then start thinking about building out an office, like I said, more like a multifamily property. It's going to look like how it's going to look. 
we're going to repaint it. We're going to carpet it. We're going to you know make sure that the lobbies look great. But the space is kind of the space you know now for years, and it's kind of a take it or leave it. But what again, kind of diving back into that thesis around co-working is that that kind of build out is also works for co-working because it's going to take different types of spaces. It's going to create you know multi-use possibilities within one floor or two floors of a building. So I, I think it's just in the future we're going to see more and more co-working start to show up in more buildings. While maybe some of the bigger, you know, traditional spaces are up upstairs, the the smaller tenants are gravitating, I think, more and more co-working. It's just kind of how we see it. You know, one topic that we've discussed a lot on the show, as of late, as you can imagine, is inflation. You know, we just recently had a print over 7%. And I'm really curious to know how you think commercial real estate will fare as we maybe see more inflationary pressure in 2022 and beyond, mainly because, you know, cap rates are relatively low and asset prices have been relatively high. So when those cap rates are low, the real returns are low. That might widen. So I'm just kind of curious. At the same time, as you mentioned, real estate is a hard asset. So there's a lot of appeal to move into it. So how does that kind of all balance out in your mind? Trade's probably like the question of early 22, right? When we saw that 7% you know, year-over-year spike in CPI come out, I think it took everybody back a little bit. I think we kind of knew it was coming, but it was still a little bit of a shock to see it. So, you know, the, look, this question has definitely been on the minds of a lot of our investors on the marketplace, you know, as we see these kind of unprecedented, you know, levels of inflation post-pandemic, you know, start to really pop up. You know, both our research and experience suggest that, you know, owning hard assets, you know, during inflationary periods is usually a good strategy. Commercial real estate's a good hedge. And, and commercial real estate is also the largest category of hard assets. So, you know, let's dive in. Let's add a little bit of context to that. You know, I think what's interesting to note is that last year we saw Green Street produce a report that sought to analyze this very same question. And what stood out to me was the data that it presented showed that if you looked at the the period of the, the last real inflationary period for us, right, was in the 1970s and 80s. And if we look at how commercial real estate performed during that period, and it's been tracked through, you can track it through private real estate, through the NACREF index, and you can track it through public REITs, through the NAREIT index. What you will see over that 1970s to 1980s period is that real estate beat the annualized S&P returns by 9% on average. And what that did is it translated into a 5% annualized real return on investments. So, and as a reminder, real return is what we get, you know, after we take taxes and inflation into into perspective. So 5% during a high that high inflationary period was pretty solid. But on the other hand, the S&P, the long-term treasuries, corporate bonds, right? Those those returns were all net real negative during that decade of inflation. So this historic performance of REITs and the NACREF index, I think it gives us some some solace and even maybe some confidence that investing in commercial real estate is actually a, as good of a hedge as we oftentimes think it to be during periods of inflation. And so from there, I think it really is then worthwhile to kind of break that down when we think about asset class, uh, because not all commercial real estate is kind of equal when it comes to um, hedging against inflation. And so you know, what I mean by that is, is that if we think about the most inflation resilient uh, and dynamic asset class, well, you, you, what you're doing is you're taking the analysis of the duration of the lease. The shorter the lease term, the more resilient, the longer the lease term, the less resilient. So what would be the number one most resilient asset class? Well, hotels. They get marked to market daily. Uh, they can rapidly adjust in times of inflation and kind of garner what you can get at every period of month as, as inflation ensues. 
on the opposite side of the spectrum, well, the most, I'd say, inflation, like non-resilient asset class, I would be something like a 30-year net, triple net lease on a Starbucks or a Walgreens, right? That lease has been signed up years ago. The lease bumps are all baked in. If it was signed up a couple years ago, that lease term, well, it, it, it was assuming a low inflationary environment for like the next 30 years. So you, you'd probably want to avoid that type of asset. Now you've got everything in between. So you know what's what looks closer to hospitality? Well, multifamily apartments, right? Because we've got one-year lease terms. They're constantly coming up on renewals month by month throughout the year. So you can, again, you can mark to market, you know, to keep pace with inflation and grow rents. We saw that in 2021, right? Massive rent growth in multifamily up double digits nationwide while we saw some markets as high as 25 to 30%. From there, you're going to get into what I probably something that looks like multi-tenant office. Those are three to five year terms. So you're going to have probably what, 15, 20% of your, your building turning at any given time. It's not as you know resilient as something like multifamily or hospitality, but it's also not the end of the world. Industrial is going to be a little bit longer, right? We're going to see five to seven, 10 year lease terms in, in industrial. So I'd say that when in an inflationary environment, industrial is going to do fine. It's always doing fine. It's doing great right now, but you probably want to look at what's your weighted average lease term. Uh, so you know, I think that's kind of a, a good way to look at it in terms of, you know, asset class by asset class. I think the final one is retail. Retail is going to also have a little bit longer terms, five to 10 years. Sometimes those lease bumps in, in retail, they, they, they can go out four or five years before they bump up. So again, when we think about inflationary environments, we're probably going to look at a retail deal and dive into that rent roll and say, who's rolling? How does it look? When do the rent bumps occur? But overall, it's you know commercial real estate as we've seen is, and we feel confident in it, it's, it's a good hedge against inflation. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Coriant.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. That's Corient dot com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network in the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. 
That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. I'm just curious about this, but you mentioned the multifamily boom, and I'm seeing that in your data. I have this question around the chicken or the egg, right? Because obviously, our investors looking at multifamily as an opportunity to go in and take on you know this new ownership of the building, which then allows them to essentially raise the rent prices or gives them an opportunity to do so. Are they seeing a increase in wage inflation in the area, meaning they're studying the demographics around that certain location? And they're saying, hey, people can afford higher rents. There's the opportunity. Or is that the chicken or the egg? Which comes first? Well, okay. So yeah, the answer is I think it all blends together, but it does start. It probably starts a little bit more with the rent growth because you know when you go in and buy a multifamily property, you're looking at the demographics in place. You're looking at what the asset is doing, how it's performing, and also when markets really run. You're going to look at, and we, and we literally will do this in a deal that we look at today, if it's an existing asset. What was the rent achieved on a unit type today and six months ago? And if that, if that unit type just rented for just called $100 more per month today than it did six months ago, then what we have confidence in is not necessarily it's, that it's going to rent for $200 more tomorrow, but that the six month ago lease really is $100 behind the market because you have proof points positive in your deal today of what is achievable on a unit by unit basis. So what you do then is that, you know, to your trade to your point on when you think about wage growth, now you're you're taking a deal, you you have a confidence in what you can charge today. You can get more confidence by doing some additional analysis and saying, hey, look, if I improve units and I make them nice, I make them as nice as a property down the block that just is renting another unit next door to me for you know $200 more than me. Can I get that rent? If I, if I make my unit look nice, the answer, if you can get to that analysis, maybe yes. But then from there, you got to get to that demographics. Now we're going to get into that level of the wage growth because what you can know today is Hey, within my one mile radius, my three mile radius, my five mile radius, like what are the incomes in this, in this location? And as we know, like paying rent is, it tracks relatively to a percentage of what you earn, right? You can't spend all your money on rent. Uh, you can only spend up to a certain part. And it's, you know, it's going to range, you know, so when we think about affordability, you know, affordability is 25% of your income. Yes, affordable, 30%, possibly. Yes, when you get into you know urban metros, you get into the biggest markets like New York and San Francisco, you see that go up to above 40%. You always have to put it into the context of kind of like what in this location of the country, on average, what are people spending to live? Then now you, now you can start pivoting to wage growth. So if we see in times like today, when we're seeing wage growth occur, well, if you know these people in this location are making more money tomorrow than they are today... They're going to kind of look at, at their own monthly budget. I mean, yes, everybody wants to have more discretionary income for fun stuff, but if the rents are going up and you want to live in a nice place, then you're willing to pay you know that same percentage of your income. So wage growth is what gives you confidence in the continuation of some of the rent trends that, that we're seeing. Now, look, in, in 2021, we saw the pent-up demand leading to out, outsized rent growth, absolutely. In 22, we're seeing it moderate, but it's still, I think, above long-term trends. I think we'd say we roughly think it's 5% at a national level. It'll taper down to 2 to 3% as the decade ensues. But it's that wage growth that gives you some confidence that we can continue to see some run because basically, like, right, the, again, the goalposts are moving on what people can afford. All right. I love it. Talk to us about this idea about the rising appeal of niche asset classes. Describe what a niche yeah. asset class is and what are the best opportunities that you're seeing in the space? Yeah, this is just, so these kind of niche asset classes has been something that we've 
been paying attention to on our marketplace for years. We're, we've been hugely into them. They actually have been outperformers on the marketplace. So they kind of actually do, they do perform while they're interesting. And so I think right now, uh, I'd say there's like three types of deals that we really particularly like. So I'm just happy to jump into them. So first, life sciences. You know, life sciences is a sector that we continue just to see tremendous growth in. We're huge fans of it at CrowdStreet. Absolutely. And, and Trey, I'd say that what got us excited about life sciences when we, when we were really digging in and getting behind, you know, 2019, we were really studying the space. I'd say it's, you know, kind of early, you know, heading into the pandemic was when we got really excited about the space, just kind of coincidentally. And it was the demographics and what was occurring in the space that really stood out. So just to just dive into that part about, right, what's widely known that we all get is that we have an aging population. So oh what, over the next decade, the 65 and older population will increase by more than 30%. Now, add on to that the fact that the 65 and older population, on average, spends three times the amount of money on healthcare as younger cohorts. So then we take that and we, we add on top of that the fact that we have this you know, trend in data that's proving out that baby boomers, they're wanting to live healthier, more active, and longer lives. They're demanding more solutions to help them do that. So we in so in essence we have this major demographic movement that's underway and it needs R&D real estate to support it. So now now we when we look back at 2020 and say oh well we saw 70 billion dollars of private and public capital poured into life science related companies in the United States that's not a surprise that's a 93% increase over the previous record that we saw in 2018. So again VCs and private equity they follow the demographics and the demographics are saying spend money on figuring out how to help this aging cohort live happier, healthier, longer lives, right? So that money is now propelling life sciences sector along this exponential trajectory path, you know, and then I think the anecdotal like kicker here for us was we saw what happened during, during the pandemic to say, hey, when you dump a bunch of money into mRNA, you can get COVID-19 vaccines faster than we ever thought possible before. So I think we have this added spotlight to what's possible when you focus money and in efforts on treatments. So the speed at which vaccines were rolled out, right? It's just a testament, I think, to the success that's possible in this field. And investors, real estate investors and private equity investors, VC investors, they're all taking note and they're all kind of doubling down. So now to the question, right? When we think about, okay, so where do we like, where, where do we like for this niche asset class? Well, one relatively unique aspect of life science tenants is that they tend to cluster around specific areas. So we see opportunities near bustling urban environments, especially I'd say in areas where, where you've got type talent, you've got a lot of intellectual capital amassed, and you've got the, pr the a presence of top research universities. So what does that look like around the country? Well, number one, Boston Metro, right? It's, it's the number one kind of like, I think, intellectual capital of the world when it comes to life sciences. Um, from there, you're going to see San Francisco, Raleigh-Durham is an, an emerging, I think, cluster that's really interesting as well as New York. Another interesting point here is that, you know, when, you know, you've got a, a market where supply is very limited, vacancies are extremely tight. And there's, you know, there's a record, you know, rising rents um, and there's some development. So there's some opportunity, I think, to participate in the space. And it's that super low vacancy that is what gives us confidence in going into new builds. And, you know, I, I think the final thing here, which just is kind of like a feel good part of it, is that, you know, it's a type of real estate that benefits humanity, right? We love the idea of being able to go into a deal, 
fund, you know, the, the construction of a space that will attract life sciences companies that are then going to go on and do research that, you know, might one day create like real cures and treatments. So, you know, I think overall, you can definitely expect us to le- continue to lean into life sciences. Uh, we're going to be doing this stuff probably for years. Uh, so from there, number two, industrial storage facilities. Uh, I think just as an overall like today opportunity, this is probably my favorite niche. And what you're seeing in the industrial services facilities, and really just to start off with it, like what are they? Well, these are basically yards. They're storage yards. Um, you can imagine like an infill property location in a, in a metro, It maybe two to 10 acres in size. Uh, you're going to throw down some gravel, fence it in. You might possibly erect like a simple storage structure on it, but not even necessarily. It's really parking for stuff. Then you take that and you lease it on terms that can range from three to 10 years to companies that are going to like store trailers, vehicles, containers on it, essentially groups and companies that are looking to solve their supply chain problems. What I love about this strategy is that you can rent them, which is really just land to companies with good credit at what equates to about an eight to 10% yield on cost. And to me, that's a short-term phenomenon that's essentially too much yield. I think that compresses over time. So I kind of think this is like a get it while it lasts type of deal. And so we're going to pretty much, we're looking all over for them. We're doing them wherever, wherever possible. Um, the trick is assembling them because, you know, it's, it's harder, it's hard to find them because they are, they tend to be infill. They, you, people and companies want them to be located proximate to where they're going to p- deploy their goods and services. So I think, you, but if you can find them, there's demand for them and we're going to continue to do them for as long as that opportunity lasts. And I think the other, the third, the third thing that we are really leaning into as a niche is cannabis facilities. You know, and I totally understand and acknowledge that this sector is still somewhat controversial, but facts are facts. This is a type of real estate that is becoming more and more mainstream across the country as states continue to legalize the recreational use of cannabis products. And so to give you an example of a type of opportunity within space that I think is really representative of, of, of what we see as the opportunity going forward is, you know, there, you can take, we're about to participate in a cannabis industrial facility that's located in the Inland Empire of California. So in this case, the property is 100% leased. It's leased to two tenants, both of whom have like very solid financials, and you have a weighted average lease term of over eight years. So, and we're buying that property at what's a, a going in cap rate, right? So NOI divided by the purchase price of the property of 8%. And when we, and if we were to, going to swap out those tenants with just con- conventional industrial tenants that could be like literally right down the street, if you swap those tenants in, that deal now trades at a 3% cap rate. So I totally get that cannabis is still an emerging industry, but to me, a 500 basis point spread in the same type of building, in the same location, just simply because of who that tenant is right now, it's too, it's too much. I think that spread compresses in the future. So, and to me, what we're starting to get you know, evidence of that is three years ago, four years ago, couldn't really get a bank loan on cannabis uh, industrial facilities. You can today. So as the cannabis sector gains more and more acceptance over the next five years, call it, I think that you will definitely see those spreads taper dramatically probably. And it's totally possible that we could go a decade down the road and you could see cannabis industrial real estate in, in a given location traded the exact same cap rate as any other use. And so to me, this really means that, again, cannabis, cannabis properties, they present what I'd say, again, kind of a land grab opportunity, right? Get them while you can, 
watch that, that cap rate compression occur over time. And then one day they will look and feel and, and trade just like any other form of real estate. So those are the three, I think, niches that really stand out to us. And we're pursuing all of those on the marketplace right now. Now, on the other end of the spectrum from niche is are things like multifamily and industrial real estate. Is multifamily just so popular because it's easy to understand? My second question is, can you even profit still on these sectors or are they just simply overbought? Yeah. Well, multifamily is ubiquitous. It's, it's now, I'd say, kind of like the most widely understood and invested in asset class. So it, it's, it's here to stay. And it's totally true that you know, pricing's really pop, popped up on these in the last couple of years. And now we have ca- record low cap rates. So, but overall, I would say that we still like multifamily and industrial sectors. I definitely feel that there's ways to continue to profit from them in 22 and beyond. But you know, they are certainly not on sale. So, and they would kind of fall into the bucket, I think, though, right now of kind of like you get what you pay for. So with that said, you know, there's no doubt that they are substantially more expensive. They are. And I do think that it, it is wise to think about your approach to each sector, you know, these two sectors a little bit differently than you did in years past. And so I guess what I mean by that is when for, for multifamily, I think right now we see two strategies as most viable right now. First, uh, for anyone who follows our marketplace, you will see that we tend to favor ground up multifamily developments. And that strategy definitely carries into 2022. We've seen tremendous rent growth in the space. What that tremendous rent growth has, has translated into is massive appreciation for this asset class. Uh, for the most part, that rent growth has actually outpaced increased construction costs, even though that they were up 12% last year. So whenever we evaluate a ground up multifamily project, we ultimately drive the analysis to the unlevered yield on cost we believe the asset can stabilize at by year three. That's once it's built and leased up. So again, unlevered yield on cost, take the net operating income of the property, you divide that by the cost of the project to build it, that is your unlevered stabilized yield on cost. So what we are seeing right now is even in today's environment, we think we can stabilize with reasonably trended rents, a project around a 6% stabilized yield on cost. And historically, what we've sought for these types of ground up multifamily properties is about 150 basis point spread between what we would stabilize at and then compressing down to what we would sell it at. So if we were stabilizing at 6%, as we talk about, we would want to see that asset trade at a four and a half cap at exit. Well, the good news is, is that today, if you're building it, it's not a four and a half cap, it's actually a three and a half cap. So really what that means is that, that spread between the yield on cost and the exit cap is now not 150 basis points, but it can be 250 basis points depending upon the deal and the location and so forth. So it's, and it's totally fair to say that we do expect cap rates to moderate and increase to some degree over the next three years, but not dramatically. Uh, so I think that while there, and there's still some supply on the horizon, yes, multifamily is being built around the country. We're seeing it in cranes wherever we go. Uh, but overall, we like uh, ground up multifamily development because of this excess spread. And we're, we're pursuing uh, projects right now in many growth markets. The other thing that's also worth noting in multifamily that I think has now popped back up and returned as a strategy and is a little bit different, like is a strategy that we saw kind of taper in 2018 and 2019 is value added acquisitions. So the business model for a value added acquisition, it's pretty straightforward. You buy a property, you think that it's well located, it's got what we'd say good bones, uh, but it's getting tired. 
and therefore it's unable to achieve the rents that it otherwise could if it were renovated. Back in 2015 and 2016, we really liked this strategy. We were leaning into it in a lot of places. Um, I'd say Atlanta and Dallas, Fort Worth is a really good example of that. And one way that we, we evaluated them was very specific to looking at the return on cost of an investment into a unit renovation and what that would translate to in additional rent. And the metric that we used to see as possible was a 20% return on cost. So to quantify that, really what that means is for every $10,000 that you would invest into improving the unit, you wanted to see about a roughly $165 per month increase in rent. And in 2015 and 2016, absolutely that type of investment yielding that additional rent was achievable. Then what we saw was that later in the cycle, that return on cost tended to taper. It was tapering down to the low teens. And, and by the time it hit the low teens, we were, I think we were kind of a little bit not, you know, uh, bloom was off the rose a little bit, kind of, so to speak, when it came to like, do we really like this strategy? We, we were then more pivoting a little bit more towards development at that time. But now fast forward to today, 2022, again, with that massive rent growth that we just saw in all these markets, you can once again now take a $10,000 investment into a unit upgrade and you can actually yield more than $165 per monthly rent because of how much, how fast rents have just spiked in a lot of markets. And now you have some of these assets that are just kind of like left behind, but they could catch up if they were renovated. You know, and it's, it, we, we definitely do expect rent growth to, to moderate over the next few years, uh, which to, again, to us to suggest that it's possible that the value add play that has kind of come back to the market, it might be gone by 25 or 26. Um, but we like it for today and we're, and we're definitely leaning into it. And when we think about vintage of, of asset class that really suits his strategy in 2022, it's an early 2000 vintage property that is really well suited for it. Because if you think about a, a, an apartment complex that was built in 2005, it's still got good bones. It's, it's got high grade, you know, high quality construction. It now has higher, you know, ceiling heights than the stuff that was built in the seventies and eighties. So you can take that property and if you renovate it, it can actually live very, very close to being to new. And we've actually seen that in multiple markets. Renovated 2005 vintage property with a you know, really sharp interior renovation that's going to give you a new kitchen, new bathrooms, new flooring and fixtures and the like. And you can get very, very close to new class A rents. You do still need to trade at a discount, but that discount's actually lower than what you would, you would otherwise think. So that's, that's kind of how we view the multifamily sector today. Now on industrial, I'd say it has similarities to the multifamily story, right? We have the same rapid asset appreciation that we've seen, the same compressing cap rates. We are now solidly into like mid three caps. As I mentioned, if it's in the Inland Empire of California, it's a three cap absolutely deal. So it, for us, what that means is it's hard to find existing assets that make a lot of sense to us. It's possible, but they're rare. Um, but similar to multifamily, because of that massive rent growth that's, that, that is at the same time, you know, with decreasing cap rates, we're seeing this outsized spread come in development. So similarly, I'd say when we think, when we think about industrial development last cycle, you know, we were looking at spreads of 125 to maybe 150 basis points. And that made sense to, to do an industrial development. We've seen that bump out now to about 200 basis points. So in general, I'd say that makes us favor ground up industrial projects. You know, particularly as we see them lease up fast in multiple markets. I mean, in essence, you put up the walls. As soon as the walls are up, the tenants start to show up. And by the time the project's done, you might have it fully leased. You probably have it 
at least half least. I mean, the rate of absorption has is, is still been pretty astounding. And also, I think, you know, because of that speed, in years past, we would normally underwrite these projects to sell within three years, you know, but in actuality, they're selling in two years or less. So there's just, again, there's this like high speed kind of velocity that's in the space that, that I think speaks to some opportunity that's there. And there's just so much purchasing demand in the market for these. And that's what's driving that kind of those stabilized prices that we're seeing, even though that the buildings are maybe still in lease up. And you know, the final thing about industrial is we know the US continues to need a lot more of it than it currently has. And so to the extent that we can reliably deliver industrial real estate to the markets that we like in the short to midterm, then that's something that we, we definitely lean into on the marketplace. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business. 
and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Now, earlier you mentioned that hospitality was starting to bounce back. What markets do you think will bounce back the fastest, assuming that we'll finally be able to move past COVID over the next, say, two years? Hospitality industry has been fascinating to watch since the pandemic. As we know, it was just, it was brutally hit. It, it did bounce back pretty strongly in 2021. And for 22, we, we definitely see continued recovery for the sector. And, but with the acknowledgement of there's a possibility of some bumps along the way. And, you know, as when I talk about 2021, right, we do what, what is now known is that we marked the beginning of the recovery for the sector. And that's important for the sector going forward because you do need a base to build off of. And also what was interesting, even in 2021 was if I rewind to last year, you know, we were moderately bullish on some resurgence in the space. Assets were trading at lower levels than they were relative to 2019 pricing, but we were optimistic that things were going to start to look a little bit better for the space. What was surprising was we had performance in July of 2021 that set a new record. Uh, So to quantify that, so for example, we track occupancy and daily rate numbers that are provided by STR. So STR being, you know, the nation's leading data source for the hotel industry. So when you look at the STR RevPAR reports, now RevPAR, which really stands for, you know, it's revenue per available room. That's the product of average daily rate and occupancy. You'd find that the hospitality sector, right, it hit, it hit its high, pre-pandemic high back in July of 2019. It was just under $100 at $99.48. It then got completely wiped out during the pandemic. It bottomed in April 20 at this brutal number of $15.61. And then it started to perk up a little bit. And then back in July of 2021, which was a surprise to, I think, everybody, was that it set a new monthly all-time high of $99.95. And that was double of what it was a year before. So I think we were all expecting some recovery in 2021. I don't think any of us were really expecting to see record RevPAR on a monthly basis hit that year. I think a lot of us were thinking it was going to be 23, and some people even thought 24. So it's important to note that the market did start to bounce back. So I think that's what makes us like reasonably bullish on the hospitality sector in 22. And it's, but it's also fair to, the, that to say that, look, it, will, it should expect some volatility to remain in the sector until we really get post-pandemic. So now, if you are able to kind of take a deal and bake some level of uncertainty into it for this year and you know, buttress it with some things like excess operating reserves, I think you have a pretty good deal. And those are the kind of deals that we kind of look for in the marketplace. So we like it first and foremost in Charleston. We're most, most bullish on that marketplace. We see a lot of momentum coming to it. Uh, you know, we already saw it last year and continuing this year. And we're also leaning into this growing trend of what, what are called workcations, right? So you, you work for a period of time, you recreate for a period of time. Um, I think that's something that's in an in a increasingly remote work environment. I think that's something that actually has momentum this year. So for, for that reason, we ranked uh, the Colorado Mountain Region as our number seven market for 22. 
I do think that mountain towns are the are great places to kind of blend this work and recreating. Uh, so I think you're going to see some continued demand for those types of spaces. And you know, and overall, you can see all the rankings on which markets we like and where we like them and how we like them in our 2022 best places to invest report, uh, which is available on the CrowdStreet Marketplace. So I think to s- sum it up, Trey, like. The fuel that drove this first phase of the recovery in the hospitality sector in 2021 was, I think, stronger than expected. I mean, that was obviously largely thanks and, you know, part to the summertime surge in travel. Uh, To me, this put some wins in the sale of the hospitality sector, uh, expectations of, you know, continued recovery. And, you know, I, and I personally think that by the time we hit 20, end of towards the end of 23 into 24, that's that's now new record breaking year for the for the market. Um, so as long as we can find deals that are you know kind of well thought out in terms of navigating some of the remaining uncertainty, then I think you've got you know you've got a great story for you know ex, you know great returns in the years ahead. So I'm an entrepreneur and I have this thing where every time I drive down a street and I see a four lease sign on a building, my mind instantly goes, mm, "What could I do with that?" What could that be? Right. And as I've been driving around, this is totally anecdotal, but as I've been driving around my neighborhood, I'm seeing more and more just for lease signs on almost every street. It feels like retail has been almost left for dead. Is is it dead or are there opportunities, you know, flying under the radar here? Uh, this is this is an interesting one because I feel like retail has just been overly beaten up in the press. You know, I headlines drive perspective. And I think in this case, that perspective is somewhat disjointed with reality. Uh, you know, I like the retail sector in 2022. I think it's been overlooked since the beginning of the pandemic, you know, because of all that that negative press that's out there. And, you know, I think what's been happening in retail, you know, can be summed up during an interview. There was a, I, I, listen, I, I like to watch the, the Walker webcast. I'm a fan of Willie Walker. Recently, he had a, he had a guest on by the name of um, Frank Cepedes. What Frank points out is he in the during the interview he points to some Department of Commerce data and what, what he also mentions is, is that how there is this liberal methodology that's applied when quantifying online sales and so the the story that he pointed out was for example if you buy something online and you pick it up in a store it counts as an online sale but you went to that store right and you went to that shopping center so what that tells me is that fundamentally. Online sales in this nation will tend to be overstated relative to reality, while brick and mortar sales will tend to be understated. And because in that, and and there's actually probably like reason behind that because, well, brick and mortar it's not a great emerging story. It's a it's a it's a it's a been there story, and online is the emerging story. So we even want the story to kind of go in the direction, right? The narrative wants to overstate the online story. Not to say that online is not growing because it is, but I think there's definitely a little bit of nuance here that's worth you know delving into. And so, what part of maybe moderately bullish on retail right now? It, it even traces back to what we saw within our portfolio during the depths of the pandemic. And so, what I mean by that is when we headed into the pandemic, we saw you know occupancy levels in our retail portfolio they were high. Uh, the weighted average lease terms were in excess of five years. And what that translated to was that the assets in the portfolio had really robust debt coverage ratios. And as you know, like one of the things that, that if there's one way to lose money in real estate, it's not being able to pay your mortgage. If you can pay your mortgage, you can kind of always see yourself through to the other side of a bad time in a, in a cycle and, and eke out either a good, okay, some sort of return. 
It's when you can't pay your mortgage is when you might have to give the keys back at the bottom. So w- pandemic hits. We saw, you know, we heard that news out there, collection ratios dropped to roughly 67% nationwide. But what we saw was that good assets. So we, when we looked into our portfolio, if you had a well-leased property, your debt coverage ratio going into the pandemic for these for a lot of these shopping centers was, was about 2.4x, right? 2.4 times the debt coverage ratio that you needed in net operating income. Then you take this hit on 33% of your collections. Well, what you're left with is a debt coverage ratio that's about 1.5. That's enough to pay your mortgage. You have funds to conduct tenant improvements, and you even have some reserve cash flow. And that was in April of 2020, like the worst time in our in our memories of what it would be like to own a retail property. So now fast forward today, that stress has burned off. You know, in addition, it's also the, you, you absolutely have a scenario where the pandemic served as a bit of a forcing function. Some of those eggs, you know, those weaker retailers, they did exit some of the centers around the United States. So overall, really what that means is now the tenants that are in place, they just came through like one of the worst retail periods in our history. So they're, they're strong. They're relatively strong. And they're probably likely to stick around in a center going ahead. So then you take that environment and it layer onto it. Look at some data that was recently published by the IHL. That discusses how national retailers expect to open more stores in 2022 for the first time since then they will close since 2017. And that's not surprising to me because today in 2022, we see more and more retailers intertwine their online business with their brick and mortar business. And then second, right, according to CBRE, we can look back at Q3 of 2021, and we saw that all retail asset classes experienced positive absorption, and that reduced the overall retail availability to a 10-year low of 5.9% in Q3 from the previous 6.2% in Q2. So really the point there is that the fundamentals are coming back. And the final point about retail here, which I think is fascinating to think about, is just the optics, right? So from a, from a cap rate perspective, the retail sector is valued on a cap rate basis, kind of like a dinosaur industry with, with little hope of growth. And, you know, and, and what I mean by that is that while a good multifamily property or a good industrial property, as we've talked about just a minute ago, while that's a 3.5% cap rate deal, if it's stabilized, an equivalently good retail center in a same location is going to be valued around a 6% cap rate. And that's, that's a big spread, right? That's 250 basis points of spread. And if retail continues to grow, it's percentage of sales that are driven by e-commerce, but in a brick and mortar intertwined kind of hybrid environment. And if retail continues to grow its percentages of sales in brick and mortar locations that are driven by its e-commerce platforms, isn't it possible in the years ahead that we begin to view retail more in the perspective of something that feels a bit like last mile distribution? Maybe it's last half mile distribution, right? And if we begin to realize that, it, that, that this retail outlet is just this kind of differentiated form of delivering goods to a location, will it really continue to trade at a 250 or maybe 300 basis point discount to industrial? I, I, I don't think so. And that's why I think that there's hidden value in retail right now. So if you're generally bullish on the commercial real estate sector going forward, what risks do you see in the market if it's not things like inflation, for example, or, or otherwise that could pose a threat to the growth of the industry over the next few years? Yeah. I mean, look, I, my overall perspective on inflation is that 
I think it it does abate over the next few years. I think it's got a period of time, and again, provided that interest rates kind of move up in lockstep, I, I don't see it as you know as something posing a, a major threat to it. If it gets out of control, that's and the wheels fall off, that's where there's some risk. So, you know, roughly speaking, look, we all kind of think there's three to four, you know, rate bumps coming in the next year, twenty five basis points each. You know, if the ten-year Treasury is sitting at two and a half percent this time next year, that's probably overall a good thing for the industry. Rates have been probably too low for for too long. If, if we think about risks, I mean, to be totally honest, probably the risk that I see is as kind of the outlier uh, that could come back is is political risk. To be totally honest, like I think our economy is strong. What we look at, we're looking at roughly four percent GDP growth this year. Uh, we continue to be the market where the world wants to wants to invest in. So I think from a from a macroeconomic perspective, trending down to microeconomics and you know market rate driven perspective, I think there, there's a really good runway here. I, I just I think there, we're a little bit disconnected from the strength of our economy and you know and our political system. It's not it's not great right now. It's too polarized. It it doesn't work together to to get stuff done. And so I think that would be the the thing that could uh, derail us. And so it, it, that's probably the one thing. It's 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 something that is completely outside of our control. So for the most part, uh, but that's what I would I would say as a perspective is you know, ho- hopefully it doesn't it doesn't play into you know diminishing markets. But it's probably the one thing that that might kind of set us back a bit. Now, are you referring to the recent FOMC meeting, for example, where where they're talking about tapering liquidity and raising interest rates? And do you have any opinion on how that's going to affect the market over the next say twelve months? Yeah, I mean, my my perspective on on those types of things is again, I think it's that that will show up in moderation. The other thing that I think, in terms of look, if you want to you know run three or four years down the road, I mean, we are with the amount of liquidity that we've injected into the economy, I do feel that we are relatively speaking in the zero lower bound type of environment. Right, interest rates can't go up too high. Nothing can get too out of bounds too fast because you know at the end of the day we 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 wouldn't be able to afford to service our own national debt. So I think that there's restraint that will always be brought and there will be moderation. I you know where I see the more risk is just kind of in the way differing you know differing municipalities approach different decisions. We've got a lot of tough decisions to make around the country in terms of how to invest in infrastructure, how to deal with budget deficits and so forth, right? Uh, it's, it's the, it's the disagreement leading to potentially, you know, bad policy decisions one way or the other, whatever it is. That's the part where I think that if there, if it's not well-coordinated, there can be some risk. We've seen some examples around the, around the country when, when minds are not on the same page, uh, I think everybody just loses. So to me, that's the part when, when we look around the country, I'd say that it does start to factor into the equation a little bit for markets that we want to see municipalities that do seem to get a sense of how to get stuff done and how to come together and and reach consensus to make decisions. Absent consensus, nothing gets done. And when nothing gets done, markets suffer. Uh, And that's particularly true in the commercial real estate industry. Oh, you're talking about California. No, I'm kidding. I I live in California and I've just been amazed to see some headlines saying things like, U-Haul is sold out of trucks leaving California. Last time you were on the show, we were talking about this mass exodus in places, especially like San Francisco. Has that bottomed, in your opinion, or is that still on trend? Trey, I think from from our vantage point, we're still seeing that those kinds of trends and that and the migration in the United States is still in place, and and it's still occurring. You know, from of a net drag on on places like California. 
Uh, in addition, you know, say New York and LA, still some net negative migration. And it's generally speaking, going to some secondary markets and, and other smaller cities around the United States. I, I think when you boil it up, people are still out there rethinking where they want to live. And there's, there is this, you know, given that we, there is some, some continued momentum uh, around remote work, as we've discussed, with this more flexibility to do so, like that, that's factoring into some of the migratory patterns. And I feel like that we need to remind ourselves that, that these migratory patterns, they were in place before COVID. It's just that they were accelerated through the pandemic. And, you know, within, within places like California, uh, they are more prominent in, in the Bay Area. Um, so let's unpack that a little bit more. Uh, we looked at a, at a, a report that was produced by the California Policy Lab that showed that in 2020, that was the first time that population actually declined in California. Uh, and you did see the Bay Area seeing the biggest drop, and that was due to consistent negative net migration in state. The numbers show that compared to pre-pandemic levels, you know, about roughly about 45% fewer people moved into the Bay Area from out of state. And there has been this consistent trend for the last two decades of, you know, fewer people moving into California. Uh, I do remember we, we've discussed previously, and we, we did talk about that whole, you know, the, the U-Haul phenomenon you discussed. I remember at one point during the pandemic, it was eight times more expensive to rent a U-Haul from San Francisco to Phoenix than the reverse trip. Same, same trip, reverse direction. So you did know, and you saw, you saw that people were moving out of California and they were going to places like Phoenix, they were going to Texas and they were going to Idaho and the like. But the number one destination for people leaving San Francisco has actually been, it has been Austin, Texas. Uh, there is a website that's, uh, it's called Move Buddha and they track some of this data and they, they noted that. You know, again, just pulling it back a little bit, you, it's just goes back to the bigger picture of the reshuffling of the US urban geography you know, since the pandemic, this is going to continue on for years. I think absolutely. Uh, we're always on the move. Um, it'll, it'll trend down over time, but there's maybe a little bit of bump right now. And so w- one data source similar to the U-Haul, U-Haul story that you referenced a minute ago that I look at every year, I love to read the United Van Line study. Comes out, you know, at the beginning of year. So they just published the 2021 report and it tracks, you know, I think it's great to look at when you want to talk about net migratory trends, you know, van lines, you know, moving companies, they're great data set. So 2021 report by United Van Lines showed that the largest net outflows uh, from state to state were Illinois, New York, Connecticut, and California. And that, uh, and the largest inflows, right? So who were the net beneficiaries? They were Vermont, Florida, the Carolinas, Tennessee, and Idaho. Uh, a bunch of other states too, but those are some of the ones that stood out. And trade, I think just to finish this thought, there's there's definitely continued migration out of major metros right now. Um, fewer people are going into some of these dense areas. It's starting to change though. I mean, we are starting to see some urban renaissance. We are actually bullish on multifamily, for example, located more towards the urban core. I think we saw, you know, there's a little bit of a, the tide went out. Tides, I think, is starting to come back in. That's that's more of an intra-metro migration trend. So, you know, we're now we're, we're not really talking about in and out of the state as much as we are kind of talking about in and out of the city. Um, but overall, I do think that things will tend to normalize over the few over the next few years, and I think even normalize some to some degree for the Bay Area. And you know, despite the headlines, we've already seen occupancy and rent bounce back in in places like San Francisco. They're still a great city. They got a ton of intellectual capital, and so I do see better days ahead for it and other markets that are like it. 
but we're going to have to, you know, it's going to take a little bit more, I think, to the towards the middle of the decade for that to feel normal again. All right. I have one last question for you, and it's about CrowdStreet specifically. When I was on the platform looking around, I noticed something and I was just going to get your thoughts on it. CrowdStreet is, is a marketplace, but you also are an advisor. So I was kind of curious to know how you distinguish the difference depending on the listing that you're offering. This is a great question, Trey. And I think the answer to it sheds light on what I think is the core value proposition of our business. CrowdStreet begins and ends with our marketplace. It's the lifeblood of our business. So when we sought to launch the advisory side of our business in 2018, it was always centered around the idea that it would strengthen our marketplace while offering investors just an alternative path to investing through CrowdStreet. And so to take that from top to bottom, when we evaluate a deal at CrowdStreet, it begins as an evaluation for a marketplace offering first. It's after we go through that entire process. And if we approve that deal for the marketplace, it's at that point that we canvass it against our own discretionary sources of capital. It's from our funds and our privately managed accounts. And if it looks to be a fit for any of those fund mandates or the mandates within the privately managed account, it then runs through separate processes. One is an investment committee uh, that, that I'm a member of. The other is through IWS advisors who canvass through the privately managed accounts. And then we review it for potential allocation at that, for, from those, those sources of capital. And it's through this second lens. Okay, now we're acting as fiduciaries, right? We've already approved the deal for the marketplace. Now we're going to look at if we're going to ask questions like, is this a good fit for this fund? Does it provide the diversification that we're looking for from a geographic standpoint, from an asset class standpoint, from a sponsorship standpoint, right? We have to, we are, we are fiduciaries at the fund level. So we're going to make that decision. If there's five of the same type of deal that are coming through at the same time, and the fund is really going to only have the potential to allocate prudently to one or two of those, yeah, then we're going to choose between those one or two of those five deals. But the point is, is that it's always, it's based on the strength of the marketplace. That's the deal flow. That's why investors actually come to CrowdStreet in the first place. I'm biased, but I think we have the best deal flow in the country. And it was when we realized that we could do over a hundred deals per year repeatedly, that it dawned on us that we have the opportunity to create really interesting investment vehicles that just weren't eligible in other places because we're leveraging 250 plus relationships all over the country to then bring in over 100 deals, trending to 150 deals probably or more this year. And and then that would give us the opportunity to then divide that capital and allocate it efficiently over such a robust number of opportunities that it would ultimately translate into an investment vehicle that looked unique and looked compelling. And so that's, that's the strength of the advisory side of the business. And I think one last point really illustrates this well is that when, when we look at a single deal, you know, commercial real estate, private equity, as we, as we talk about a lot, it, it's, it's, it's finite. It's not like a stock. You can't just go keep buying it, right? It's in, in, in a case of a middle market deal, it's going to come with 20 or $30 million of total potential equity allocation. That's all that deal is going to offer. And what's important is that as we grow and scale our marketplace, the best sponsors out there. They have ample choices on how to capitalize their project, right? So they do want to see an element of certainty of execution in their capital solution. So they come and bring us a deal. It's got that $30 million of allocation, for example. And but and they, they'll look and the, at the end of the day, the marketplace is a best efforts marketplace, right? It's a place where it can go. It'll, it'll, it'll subscribe. Those individual investors will go into that project, but there's no absolute sense of certainty to it when we begin. It's based on the history 
and the track record of what we do in a marketplace. But now on top of that, we can layer on discretionary sources of capital potentially on a one-off basis. And it's that capital that helps us win the deal. So if we go to that sponsor with a $30 million allocation, we say, okay, we're going to bring this deal to the marketplace. But on top of that, while we do, the first five or eight, now $10 million maybe could be known sources of capital that's discretionary CrowdStreet. That's instrumental in winning that deal. That helps us actually bring the remaining $25 million to $20 million of allocation to the marketplace. So what we talk about with fund investors and marketplace investors is that your partners, your partners in helping us achieve the best possible deal flow for the marketplace, but it always circles and runs through the marketplace. Like I said, it begins and ends as a marketplace. Well, Ian, I always love these conversations. You always bring so much knowledge and I learn a ton. Before I let you go, I want to give you the opportunity to hand people off to CrowdStreet, to you personally, to any other resources you want to share. Oh yeah, Trey, as we always talk about, you know, easiest way to learn more ab- about us, what we're doing and deal flow is to go to the CrowdStreet website. So www.crowdstreet.com. Create an account. It's easy. Uh, you can start l- logging in. There's, there's a wealth of information. Um, the team that is behind generating the content on the website is doing a tremendous job. And there's a lot of education. That's where I always I say start. Start by educating yourself. There's a lot of nomenclature. There's stuff that we've talked about even in the, in the course of this conversation. And But we're, we're happy to help break it down, get investors up the curve. So that's a great place. I have a, a book that's on Amazon if anybody wants to check it out. I think it's called The Comprehensive Guide to Commercial Real Estate. So you can, you can go look at that there. Also, individually, if anybody wants to reach out to me on LinkedIn, I'm the only Ian from Migley on that platform. So pretty easy to find. I love talking deals. You, you, know, you know me. I can talk deals for the, for the rest of the day and happy to chat on, online. So those are, those are great ways to find and learn more about us for anyone who's interested. Well, Ian, it's always a pleasure. I look forward to doing this again, getting the update from you later this year. It'd be interesting. Yeah, Likewise, Trey. Looking forward to the next conversation. All right, everybody. That's our show. If you're loving it, please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app. You can also reach out to me on Twitter at Trey Lockerbie. And don't forget to check out all the resources we have for you at theinvestorspodcast.com. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.